Uh, good morning. My name is Dwayne Spearman. Welcome to Directional Bible Ministries. This is a teaching ministry that is called Make All Men See What is the Fellowship of the Mystery. Uh, today is July the 9th, and we are in session 27 in our study through the book of Ephesians. Uh, last time we were together, we were in session 26, and we looked at verses 26 through 27. Um, and remember in the context, uh, Paul had just finished talking in Ephesians 5.21, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. And then he goes into wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. So he's following that uh, that that conversation, that uh, argument about submission. Um, and we're going to see that as we work our way through when we get into chapter number six, same thing. He's going to talk about, you know, children obeying your parents and bond servants obeying your masters. Uh, but the catch that we looked at last time is that when you get down to verse number 31, um, he says, or verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. So he's talking here about submission, using wives and husbands as uh, his point, but he wants to make sure that we understand that he is speaking concerning Christ in the church. In other words, this comparison that he's making here between a husband and wife is about Christ and his church. I mean, there's no way around that. Now, is there application there? Yeah, of course there's application. I mean, when he says, wives, submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, I mean, yeah, I mean, that should happen. The husband is the head of the wife, yes, but his point is more so that Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be subject to their husbands and everything. Is that still a true statement for a husband and wife relationship? Yes. Um. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Yes, um, you know, just as Christ gave himself for the body, he is the savior of the body, he is the head of the body, so is the relationship between the man and the woman. And then in verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. You know, and we talked about, about this. Um, it is also the, you know, the church, according to the previous verses, he is here, the, he here is a reference to Christ when he says that he might sanctify it. Uh, and again, he's talking, you know, the he there being the Lord might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Um, so, um, also the man, you know, is responsible for, uh, the spiritual health of his home and of his wife. It is his spiritual duty as leader of his home to see to the spiritual well-being of his bride. And how's that to be done? By the washing of the water by the word. That's how that is to be done. Um, in other words, it must be done as we are saturated with the word of God. There's no other way. It's the word of God. Everything I know about the living word is found in the written word. Um, and he and everything I know about him is what makes me holy. Um, I think that one of the biggest problems that people have in the church today is that they don't even know Christ. They know the church. 
They know the rituals and the rituals of the church, but they don't know God. They don't know Christ because everything that's to be known about either one of those is found in the Word of God, which they do not know. Um, and it just breaks my heart to go into churches today and nobody's carrying a Bible. Uh, they got their phones, you know, and if, uh, you know, like in our church, it's kind of like stadium seating. So literally one row is higher than the row in front of it. So everybody can see. So there's no such thing as a bad seat. Uh, but you can look down and see that they're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, <laughs> You know, they got their phones out, but they're they're so um, distracting. Every time it vibrates, you know, that, that look, that that uh, that boost, that endorphin boost or whatever you get to go and check it out, see what's what uh, more kind of messages come out. They're distracting. Um, plus, I, I can tell you the if you have a Bible, a physical Bible in your hands, where you can actually, I know Hebrews 9.15 is on the right page in the left column in the middle of the page. You know, um, on a digital Bible, that's impossible for you to do that. Uh, You have to be able to go exactly where you want to go. So I think you're at a disadvantage when you limit yourself to a digital version of the Bible. Plus, when the lights go out, your digital version of the Bible is not going to work. So I would encourage you, get used to a Bible. I have always carried a Schofield King James Bible. So Hebrews 9.15 in every Bible I have ever carried is on page 1,299. I mean, I would just encourage you, that is the most effective way to study the Word of God. You know, when I was a kid, our pastor would actually say, open your Bibles to page 1299, because the assumption was everybody in the congregation had the same Bible. You know, I'm a teacher. You go into a classroom. You tell your students, open your books to page 9, and you're assuming everybody in your classroom has that edition of that textbook you know, and so you don't have people jumping up and down saying, well, mine says it this way. Mine doesn't say it that way. That word's not in mine. That's why in the classroom, we've got enough sense to make sure everybody's reading out of the same textbook, same edition. Um, you know, and we spend thousands of dollars for students to be able to do this. But then when it comes to church, everybody's dragging something in there. And none of them say the same thing. You know, I just got out of a conversation with my buddy Scott, you know. I mean, we were looking at uh, Hebrews 9. Matter of fact, that's why my Bible's open to that. I mean, it it clearly says, you know, that uh, it says testament there. Uh, It says that um, saying this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Speaking of Moses, well, when was the testament made with Moses? On Mount Sinai uh, is when it was made with Moses. But other translations, matter of fact, every other translation as far as we can see says the blood of the new covenant. Well, there was not a covenant made on Mount Sinai. There's the Abrahamic covenant, 
there's covenants in the Bible, but there's only two testaments in the Bible. And it's that first testament, which was made with Moses on Mount Sinai by the sprinkling of blood of goats and bulls and heifers. And then there's the new, which was made by Christ on the cross. Um, so anyway, I, I'm just a big proponent. We all need to be carrying the same translation if we're teaching together. It just makes life so much easier. Um so, I don't know how I got off on that, but it's the washing of the water of the Word uh, that sanctifies us, that helps us grow in our walks with Christ. The reason most of us aren't growing is because we're not in the Word. The reason, reason most of us stink um, is because we haven't bathed. We're not in the washing of the water of the Word. The reason your theology is whack is because you're not in the Bible, you know? And if you think just going to church, sitting there like, you know, bowed up like a big bullfrog on a pew, you're going to grow, you're not, okay? You're just getting force-fed something. Make sure that what you, what you know is what you believe, and what you believe is what you know, not what you've been told. Because I've been told a lot of things that I've come to find out, i.e., what we just talked about with the difference between a new covenant and a new, a new testament. We're not under a covenant today. And we've talked about that. If you've been following along with me, we're not under a covenant. We're not a covenant people. Uh, God's never made a covenant with Gentiles. Um, we're under a new testament, and we are ministers of that testament, which is the testament of reconciliation. You know, I mean, anyway, but... We are, you know, to translate that, that he might sanctify or interpret that, to apply that, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the word. That first and foremost is talking about Christ and his relationship to his body. But he's also making the comparison between a man and a woman that he might eventually present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And last time we were together, we went over how that we, the church, are not the bride of Christ. And, I mean, if you Google search the word bride of Christ, it's not in your Bible. Uh, but because of this comparison that Paul makes between a man and a woman and between Christ and his church, we arrive at this erroneous doctrine that we are the bride of Christ. We're not the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is the nation of Israel, more specifically, the land itself, the New Jerusalem. Um, and we looked at this with uh, Justin Johnson's study, how that God made a covenant and a promise to Israel in time past. God married himself to Israel through the covenants. And again, you can look in this session and go through the study. Israel was unfaithful to that covenant, so what happened? God said God divorced her, but he promised that he would restore her. In other words, restore her from the divorce, remarry her, and there would be no rest until Jerusalem is established over all the earth, and God is faithful to keep his covenant with Israel, and one day the remarriage will be complete in the kingdom. And he says very specifically in Roman in Revelation 11 that the bride is the city. 
And Jesus came preaching the kingdom, be ready, prepare. So we went over that study showing that God is married to the nation of Israel. Israel is the bride, uh, not you and me, the body of Christ. We are the body. The body is not simultaneously the bride. He is the head of the body. The bride is speaking about the nation of Israel. And then then, then it's without blemish, uh, so that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Christ desires to present a, present a church to his Father um, without spot or blemish. Um, and, and so, too, the man should seek to the same for his wife. Um, then we pick up in verse uh, 28, which is session 27 that we're on today. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth his body. Remember that we are reading, as we're reading through this, that Paul is going to say in verse 32 that he is talking about Christ and the church and is merely using the marriage relationship as the example. So we have to pay attention to the interpretation before we start worrying about the application. And so many will go to Ephesians 5 and preach a whole sermon series which if you're going to preach a series, which is more than one message, on what the Bible says about marriage, specifically uh, in the New Testament books, you're going to be bringing in a lot of things that are extra biblical because the Bible just doesn't say that much about it. Okay, And then you're going to start twisting things like Ephesians 5. Well, you got to give the interpretation first before you can give the application. The interpretation is that Ephesians 5 is about Christ and his body, using the marriage marital relationship as the example, okay? Um, so remember that he's going to say that in verse 32, so we must pay attention to the interpretation before we start worrying about the application. So I believe this verse is a reference to the one flesh that's mentioned in Genesis 3.24, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. And in Ephesians and in Genesis two twenty four, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. They become one. Uh, what he's saying, and that word cleave shall cleave. Today, that is an example of a word that has a completely different definition. Today, when you think of cleaving, it's leaving. It's, it's prying two things apart. But the word cleave in the biblical context means to drive together, to keep as one. So the word has actually changed meanings over the years. So that means I need a modern translation. No, that just means you need to be a good student of the Word of God is what it means. And I was just talking about this with my buddy. I mean, we were looking at the 2023 edition of the King James Bible, like we need another translation of the Bible uh, that no one's going to read anyway. They don't read the old translations, let alone a new one. I mean, what is the motivation behind all of these translations? Money. Um, they get them copywritten so they can make money. Uh, that's what the motivation is. Why don't you just, you know, God left man with only one translation for what, 400 years? 
you know, and all of a sudden we came along and decided that man had been left long enough with the bad translation. I mean, think of that whole argument. You know, think about everything that happened between 1611 and between, when, when was it, 1940s, 50s, when the Revised Standard came out. So all those years, you know, man had a poor translation of the Bible. Is that what you're saying? You know, that God didn't do anything? Like, I don't know, first grade awakening, second grade awakening, God didn't do anything. What's he done since? You know, I mean, it's just, it's an arrogant argument in my opinion. The old King James Bible is easy enough to read. You don't understand the word, you look it up. You know, just like when you're reading today, you see a word, you look it up. Uh, And then once you know the definition, you know the definition. If you do that enough times, it'll all make sense. So, anyway, I believe this verse is a reference to the one flesh mentioned in Genesis 2.24. Barnes says of it, If a man wishes to promote his own happiness, he had better begin by showing kindness to his wife. You know, which is cool. And, and Barnes does understand that more than probably any other commentator that the interpretation of this text is Christ and his church. But there is an application, and that's what Barnes is referring to here. He also says a man's kindness to his wife will be more than repaid by the happiness that she imparts. And that that's true. I mean, he is making comparison with the, the marital relationship. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. And it means that when you love your wife, you benefit yourself. Um, I was talking to my boys the other day, and both of them said, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> and I looked at my wife, and she said, they got that from you. And it is true. It is true. When everybody, you know, when the wife's happy, everybody's happy. Well, when the husband's happy, everybody's happy, too. Um, um, so, anyway, uh, he goes on to say, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it, even as the Lord, the church. And we all do what is in our best interest. Uh, therefore, it is in our best interest that our wife is cared for. And we recoup the benefits of that happy, blissful relationship. Um, and then he says in verse 30, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Um so he, we are members of his body. So again, he's talking about the body of Christ there. We are of his flesh and we are of his bones. The application is that a man should love his wife in the same way. So the Lord loves the members of the body because we are part of the body. And the application is that a man should love his wife as he does his own body. Now, can you imagine loving somebody like you love yourself? I don't know about you, but I I care about myself a whole lot. I take care of myself. Um, And then he goes on in verse 31, For this cause shall a man leave his mother and his father, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. You see, back in Genesis 3.24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave, shall cleave unto his wife, shall cleave unto his wife. Um, and in verse 31 of Ephesians, for this cause shall a man leave, see, leaving and cleaving, (laughs) you leave 
your father and your mother, and you cleave unto your wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So again, this verse is an earthly illustration of the relationship that God has with his church. And then in verse 32, he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So this verse explains the previous ones, verses 22 through 31. Context dictates that. Keep in mind that the issue is still unity, and he is using marriage as the example of that unity. And again, that being said, some commentaries seem to absolutely ignore this verse. Uh, one said, it's easy to think that Genesis 2.24 passage, also quoted by Jesus in Matthew 19, only speaks about marriage. Paul wants us to know that it also speaks about the relationship between Christ and his church. Nailed it. Okay, a very good uh, commentator said that. Another one said, this is true in regard to the pattern of the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. Woman was made at the beginning as the result of an operation which God performed upon the man, and we know that God put Adam to sleep. How does the church come into being? As a result of an operation which God performed on the second man, his only begotten beloved son on Calvary's hill, a deep sleep fell upon Adam, a deep sleep fell upon the Son of God, he gave up the ghost, he expired, and there in that operation, the church was taken out. So again, this commentator is doing a very good job. As a result, the woman was taken out of Adam, so the church is taken out of Christ. The woman was taken out of the side of Adam, and it is from the Lord's bleeding, wounded side that the church came. And it's true. I mean, he established the New Testament by the death of the testator, which was Christ. So we are ministers of the New Testament, and that's what we do today. And again, as me and my buddy were talking about, there's a difference between a covenant and testament. And so many translations get those two to mean the exact same thing. They don't. There was no covenant given at Mount Sinai with the, with, with the nation of Israel. And there was no covenant given at the cross. that They were testaments. So they must of necessity be different. Um, Albert Barnes says, and I like what he says the best, this, it seems to me, is an explicit disclaimer of any intention to be understood as affirming that the marriage contract was designed to be a type of the union of the Redeemer and his people. The Apostle says expressly that his remarks do not refer to marriage at all when he speaks of the mystery. They refer only solely to the union of the Redeemer and his people. How strange and unwarranted, therefore, are all the comments of expositors on this passage designed to explain marriage as a mysterious type of the union of Christ and his church. So, Barnes is arguing against the type. Uh, so, he would say this is not a type. The, the marriage relationship between the man and the woman is not a type of the relationship between Christ and his church. He goes on to say, 
Um, if people would allow the apostle to speak for himself and not force on him sentiments which he expressly disclaims, the world would be saved from such insipid allegories as MacKnight, which was obviously a, another commentator at the time, and others have derived from this passage. The Bible is a book of sense, and the time will come, will come it is hoped, when freed from all such allegorizing expositions, which happens when you go to Ephesians 5 and you walk away with, we are the bride of Christ, okay? Um, he's not saying that at all. He's not saying that the, the relationship between the man and the woman is a type. Um, it will commend itself to the good sense of mankind. Marriage is an important, a holy and noble, pure institution, although altogether worthy of God, but it does not thence follow that marriage was designed to be a type between the union of Christ and his church, and it is certain that the Apostle Paul meant to teach no such thing. So Barnes is just saying, hey, you know, this is not a type. Uh, it's definitely not saying that the church is the bride of Christ, even though Barnes doesn't use that term, that's where we get the type that we build when we say that. Uh, so I think I think Barnes um, did a very good job there. Did I just mess up my notes somehow? Let's see. Yeah, I did. Look at there. I put it right back. So, so anyway, Barnes is just saying, hey, you, you need to stay away from that. This is talking about Christ and his church. It's not building some type of the marriage relationship um, that would culminate in saying we are the bride of Christ. Even though Barnes didn't say that, I believe that's where Barnes is going with that. You read some of these older guys, you can see that they definitely differentiate between the body of Christ and the nation of Israel. You read the new guys and they really try to blur the lines between the body of Christ and Israel, up to including they are one and the same thing. The old guys took special pains to make sure you understood that they were not the same thing. The new guys, and I say this again, blur the lines. And that's where you get this covenant theology coming in. I am absolutely opposed to covenant theology. I am totally opposed to replacement theology, replacing Israel with the body of Christ. The body of Christ will never be Israel, and Israel will never be the body of Christ. They are two different things, and they always and forevermore shall be. And as Barnes is talking about how the, we try to make this a type of the of Christ and his church, the ultimate culmination of that is saying that the church is the bride of Christ. We are not the bride of Christ, and we've already established that in previous studies. And then in verse 33, nevertheless, let every, every one of you in particular love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Again, he's bringing the argument back to love and submission which is what he started off with when he began this diatribe <laughs> right here, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God in Ephesians 5.21. Nevertheless, it all comes back to love 
and submission. So I've been going for about 30 minutes now. I hope that clarifies things for you. He's going to continue in chapter 6 on this, this, this theme of love and submission. And he's going to start talking about kids, children. You need to obey your parents. Okay? Master servants, you need to obey your master. So we'll talk about that next time. But uh, anyways, God bless you guys. Always a privilege to be with you. I hope you're enjoying the studies as I work. I am not perfect, let me tell you. Um, I am studying the Word of God as diligently as you are. Um, And I have been convinced that I have been wrong. Uh, about many things um, over the years because I just went with what I was taught and did not rightly divide the word of truth as I should have. But I'm learning that. Excuse me. I'm learning that now, and I hope you're learning it with me, and I hope you're enjoying, enjoying the journey. But God bless you guys. Hope you have a great Lord's Day. Remember, he loves you, wants the best for you. It's working all things out for our good.